0: This is Timeless Leadership, where we explore the values and principles that drive extraordinary leaders. We look for the timeless virtues that are just as relevant in the 21st century as they were in the first century. Universal truths that will help make us better versions of ourselves. Well, hello there. It's Scott Monty and welcome back to Timeless Leadership. I'm so glad you're here. If you haven't already done so, hit that subscribe button and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It would really help us out. And don't forget, every other show is an essay in which I also take your questions about leadership, about challenges you're having, about anything you'd like to share that perhaps I can give some feedback on. So drop a note at timeless at scottmonte.com. Would love to hear from you and hear what you are thinking about these days. You know, being self-employed isn't for everyone. I mean, sure, there's flexibility and freedom, but ultimately, you're the only one looking out for yourself. Which, when you think about it, is pretty much what life is. When you're trying to get into a school, apply for a job, get a promotion. You are your best advocate, because no one knows you like you do. Well, at least that's the hope. It takes a certain sense of commitment and self-discipline to make it work. And amid the hard work and diligence to keep all of those balls in the air as you juggle it can be easy to skip over the part where your values come into play. And this doesn't just apply to self-employed people. This is a human thing, relevant for whatever job you're showing up for, relevant to all of your life. Work life and personal life are often treated as separate entities, and yet it's the same person who shows up for both what if you lived a life that was more holistic a life where you can connect who you are with what you do and love doing that's what Jeffrey Shaw is going to teach us in the self-employed life from humble beginnings Jeffrey Shaw became one of the most preeminent portrait photographers in the United States His portraits have appeared on The Oprah Show, CBS News, in People and O Magazine, and hang at Harvard University and the Norman Vincent Peale Center. Today, Jeffrey is a keynote speaker at association events and conferences such as Imaging USA, How Design, Growth Marketing, ProfitCon, and for corporations like Verizon and BMW. He is the author of two books, The Self-Employed Life and Lingo, he's a LinkedIn learning instructor, and Jeffrey's podcast The Self-Employed Life is among the top 15% of all podcasts. He's also the founder of the Self-Employed Business Institute and is responsible for the creation of National Self-Employed Day on the U.S. national calendar for May 4th of every year to honor the hard work and contribution of independent business owners. When not traveling, Jeffrey can be found hosting Waffle Sundays, where friends new and old gather at his home in Miami for homemade waffles, mimosas, and camaraderie with awesome people. Jeffrey Shaw, welcome to Timeless Leadership. I'm glad to be here with you, Scott. Thank you. I want an invitation to Waffle Sunday. You've got one. It's an open
1: invitation. (laughs) I've I've told my kids many times, I I truly believe someday I'm going to end up on The Tonight Show talking about Waffle Sundays. Not all the hard work I've tried putting out there
0: in my life. Somehow Waffle Sundays resonates. (laughs) Well, they do. I mean, look, uh, Florida is a bastion of waffle houses and having a waffle house in your own uh, in your own place. Even better. Right. Um, Well, um, as much as people like waffles, I think a lot of people like the idea of working for themselves. Um, And maybe there's a little bit of terror that goes into that as well. Uh, And that's what we're here to talk about is your book, The Self-Employed Life, Business and Personal Development Strategies that Create Sustainable Success. So how did you, Jeffrey Shaw, fall into The Self-Employed Life? Hmm.
1: So uh, I was actually at dinner uh, with a, a group of friends that we have in common. And somehow the conversation came up that I had never I've never had a traditional job and I've never received a paycheck. And that wasn't at all unusual to me, except for everybody else at the table, it was like, seriously? You've never had a traditional job. Uh, and then somebody said, you know, in our world of professional speakers, somebody said, Well, do you talk about that on stage? Like that's a that's quite a good thing to to pitch and to talk about. And I was like, nope, never mention it. Because I, I for me, it's been my whole life. So I don't see anything unusual about it. Uh, rooted in my very first business that I built uh, at 14 years old is I sold eggs door to door. I grew up uh, about two hours north of New York City, which at that time was deep country farmland. And uh, there weren't a lot of people, uh, but there were a lot of farms around there. And I struck a deal with a local farmer uh, where I would come by on Thursdays and I would uh, collect the eggs, put them in the cardboard cartons. And on Saturday, I would drive door to door at 14 years old, not even of legal driving age. And I would deliver eggs door to door and my mom owned a beauty parlor in town and i would pack up cartons of eggs for her to bring to her beauty parlor on saturdays because everybody needs eggs for sunday morning brunch um and that was the beginning of my self-employed journey honestly and then then from that i became a professional photographer later coach
0: author speaker etc Holy cow, it started with (laughs) eggs at 14. Now, what made you decide at 14 that eggs were your calling for for the moment, at least? I tell you, it was a conversation with my father, which it's taken me all these years to
1: see how profound his comment was, which was uh, it it didn't seem like a very kind comment at the time. And I'm still not sure. My father passed when I was 20, so I've never been able to go back and ask him. Um, But he said to me, uh, my father was a man of very few words. And I've had very, I had very few conversations with him in my youth, but one time, perhaps ironically, we were eating eggs at a at a restaurant, and I don't know what prompted the comment, but he said to me, "No one is going to care about your life as much as you do," Mm. and I like i said i didn't know how to respond to that because i was thinking does this mean my parents like my as a 14 year old i'm immediately thinking is he kicking me out is does does he not care about my life or you know um but none regardless of the intent it was a powerful message because what i took from that uh was literally thinking okay if that's the case right if 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 no one's going to care about my life as much as I do, and I'm growing up in a socioeconomically depressed area, there's not a whole lot of opportunity. There's zero, I have two older brothers who are of age to go to college, but there's no conversation about higher education. I was just looking at my future and thinking, I got to take this bull by the horns because nobody else is showing up to do this for me. And that embedded in me a reason to become self employed, and that is to the, the core of of why i've been self-employed ever since like no one else is going to care about my life as much as i do i'd better take the bull by the horns here be self-employed steer my own life not rely on somebody else to provide a paycheck and not live with the terror of walking into work one day and having the rug pulled out from you So that's it's just rooted in my independence as as a self-employed business owner.
0: Yeah, and boy, that is—you're right—it is profound, particularly for the era in which your father said it. I mean, you—you mentioned in your book that you grew up in a, a community that uh, involved a lot of people who worked for IBM Mm -hmm. locally, and uh, those were the days where a company like Big Blue. Uh, would take care of you for 30, 40 years. People had pensions, people could count on, you know, one company in their entire career. Correct.
1: My father was one of the first 90 employees.
0: Oh my goodness. uh, At IBM
1: production plant, right? So you had, the way IBM formed, they had their executive offices in Westchester, New York, but they were as this up and coming computer company, we're talking 1967. So they were an up and coming computer company and and they bought up because this was farmland. They bought up tremendous amount of the land knowing, I I guess, aspiring and confident they were going to become the world's biggest computer company eventually. And so they, I mean the acreage, I can't even describe the size of the plant Mm. of, of to produce these computers. Now, mind you, back in the day, computers were the size of rooms. Um, And so it was this high technology being built in the middle of farmland. And my father was one of the first 90 employees to begin the production of computers for IBM. Wow. Um, But to your point, it was Big Blue. He never really went beyond a very low-level position. He never was advanced. He didn't have, he himself had uh, a GED. He never, he didn't even graduate high school technically. He got his GED. Um, But to his credit, you know, I mean, he managed to get himself into IBM, but this was their production plant. So uh, the weird thing about my childhood is that we we shared a phone number with five families. It was called a party line because there weren't enough phone lines. So we shared a phone number with five families. So if you wanted to make an outgoing call, you had to pick up the phone to see if anybody else was on the line. <laughs> right. All right. Um, but at the same time, my father's bringing home computers, and I'm learning DOS at eight years old, right? So I can program DOS, but I couldn't make a phone call on my own line. Like it was just that, that's my
0: upbringing. It was very, very uh, odd. Yeah, <laughs> definitely uh, different. And, and look, I mean, certainly one that uh, led to, like you say, this kind of self-fueled destiny. Um, and and I think that's what a lot of people are realizing now as they see Layoffs as they see, you know, the gig economy happening, as well, certainly as we went through the pandemic, uh, there are fewer and fewer opportunities that we have to control our own destiny. And when you seek out becoming self employed or get (laughs) thrown into the mix of becoming self employed, however, you arrive there, you realize that you you can control your destiny more than not. And I think that's really a big driver for a lot of people going into self-employment, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And and to your point, and even in the intro,
1: you mentioned about the terror of becoming self-employed. For me, I look at it the other way around. Like I, I have so much respect for... For one, like the clients I work with one-to-one tend to be, because it's an area I specialize in, uh, my one-to-one clients tend to be folks that are dreaming of building their own business. So they're already thinking about um, leaving their corporate job. Ideally, hopefully, maybe they're thinking a year ahead. Maybe it's six months ahead. Um, But as I, the first thing I always point out to them, now that you've thought of it and you've reached out to me. Now you're not going to be able to unsee it like now everything about your job is going to irritate you It's like a it's like (laughs) when you've become aware that you're in a bad relationship You can't not see what's bad about that relationship. So now, you know, there's no turning back once you've implanted the idea in your head That maybe I'll leave my job to start my own consulting firm or what have you it's, It's almost a train going in a definite direction so Hopefully they they reach out for support and work with me, and I, I help them make that six month to a one year transition to get them prepared. And many of many of my clients at, at that point have zero idea of even what business they want, and that's one of the things I'm really good at and help help with and love to help with is to like what's what's a marketable business based on your skill set, your personality, and how you want it. To your point, like how do you want to live your life? You may not want to leave that corporate job only to work harder running your own business. Like how do you, what's the life that you want? And how can we build a marketable business that fulfills the life of your dreams? Mm. But I, I mean, I look at that Scott and think, I don't, I don't know that I have that bravery because I've always been self-employed. I look at the level of bravery it takes to leave a steady paycheck um, or the terror that one lives with, wondering if at any moment the rug's gonna be pulled out from underneath you. There's, a real, there, there's real courage, and I don't even know that I have it. I know th- people think being self-employed is courageous. I, not from where I sit.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and I've been on both sides. And, um, you know, I enjoy, there are moments of, of, of uh, angst and, and stress uh, with any job, you know, whether you're in, in corporate life or whether you're working for yourself. It's just, uh, they're of a different nature. And I think you just identified it there. When you're in a corporate world, the stress is outside of your realm of control. Um, and, and, and termination could be greeted upon you at any moment for no reason of your own. I, you know, I just, just this week, a long-term colleague called me up and he said, I, I was just fired today. I was brought into HR. No notice whatsoever. They, they didn't tell me I was performing poorly. They didn't even tell me exactly why I was being fired just yeah. that your services are no longer needed, and and, and, and Scott, I don't mean to interrupt, but what's changed also, which we all we've all seen change, is how
1: you know how how often companies lack integrity, so they now let go from the top down.
0: Yeah,
1: right. It used to be you worried at the lower levels that your job might be eliminated because maybe AI or technology or something is going to replace you. Where now often these decisions are based on where can we save the most amount of money? Let's let go from the top down.
0: Yeah, yeah, and. It, it's it's the easiest uh, target. Mm-hmm. There's fewer of them and they're bigger. So, yeah. um, well, I'm I'm interested in exploring um, what you call the the self-employed ecosystem. There's really kind of three main um, elements to it, and I was hoping we could walk through them together. That sound okay to you? Absolutely. Okay. So, uh, what what interested me when I first picked up your book was this very tight. Uh, intersection or interweaving of business and personal because let's let's face it I think we've realized now through the pandemic that work and personal lives are intertwined and certainly when you're running your own business <laughs> there is no divide between personal and and business so talk a little bit about personal development to start and why that's a really important foundation to set
1: mm-hmm. Such an important point, because particularly for a more corporate-minded audience, leaders, uh, your, your level of success when you're corporately employed is likely contingent on a lot of factors, right? Uh, c- career advancement opportunities, seniority, people ahead of you. There are, are many ceilings when you have a traditional corporate job that determine your level of success. When you're self-employed and and... Having been self-employed for 40 years, nobody ever pointed this out to me. It's just something you have to experience to understand it. But now I'm grateful that I can point it out to others. The The biggest, you know, and as you said, in this world of remote work and during the pandemic, yes, people became aware that there is less of a division between our personal lives and, and uh, business lives. But what people don't understand until you're self-employed is that the biggest correlation between your personal life and your business life is your degree of person your degree of success is directly proportionate to your level of personal development? Hmm. Right. So instead of it being a a ceiling of opportunity or a ceiling of seniority, it's now a ceiling ab- above you that determines how f- how successful you're gonna be is determined by how much you have stepped into believing in yourself. How much you have done the work within yourself to to really embrace how much you deserve the des- the the deserving ceiling, as I call it, as I think is one of the most hideous one. Um, people don't realize that they're working really really hard, but they haven't actually believed they deserve all the success. They haven't they haven't lifted off the the unlimited way that they could live, right? So there's this deserving ceiling. They're working really hard. But they hadn't actually. They haven't actually done the interior work to to raise that ceiling that they deserve as much as they they choose to. Uh, so that's what I mean about that, and that's why I stress the importance of personal development. I often refer to it as capacity. What mm. you're really doing in doing the personal development work, and you know, asking yourself some powerful questions. I love to ask questions like uh, I ask my clients, my students, of my business. To I ask them questions like, "What's What's a fundamental shift you need to make in your mindset in order to have the greatest opportunities in the future? Like there's some way, it kind of falls into the idea that what got you here won't get you to where you want to go. I guarantee you there's some way that you look at the world and have looked at the world all along that has served you very well, particularly if you're coming from corporate. It might be you've looked at the world that you will succeed if you behave well. All right. That might be your entire modality. And now you realize that's no longer serving you. It doesn't matter how well you behave, whether you get advancement in your career. So throw it out. What's the mindset shift you need to make? You need to to toss out. It has nothing to do with how you behave. Now it has to do with how bold you show up. Hmm. Okay. So this is the personal development work that to me has to be done. Otherwise... You know, and I'm I'm so insistent on that in, in, in both of my books so far and, and will always be a part of all the work that I do. I'm very insistent on that because I what I'm trying to prevent is a world of people working really hard but hardly getting ahead. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're when you're working really hard not getting anywhere, it's because you haven't done the personal work. You haven't increased the capacity. You haven't blown up the ceilings that are sitting on top of you. And then it's like overstuffing a sack. You're just putting more work into a a designated amount of space and you're burning out. And that's why I
0: always come back to the personal development first. Yeah, and I, I think the way you framed that, Jeffrey, is so profound because what you haven't done is you haven't given people... A, a, a prescribed template of this is who you need to be. What you're essentially saying is you need to, you need to look within and mm-hmm. you need to figure out what version of yourself, the better version of yourself that you need to be in order to get where you need to go. And Absolutely. because of that, uh, your your program, your, your uh, ecosystem here is something that can work for anyone at any stage of their uh, self-employment uh, development career. Yeah, I love that you're pointing that
1: out. And, and to that point, and I'll bet there are a lot of people listening that can relate to this. A lot of us, and this is honestly, you can kind of get a sense of where I came from. This has been the story of my life. A lot of us... <sighs> succeed far beyond where we came from. And in doing so, I end up leaving a lot of people in the wake, mm. right? Siblings, parents, you know, we have, we've, we've applied, we've had opportunities. So we ourselves have, you know, pulled us out from where we came from to higher levels of success. However, until that's brought to your attention, until you do the work, there can be a certain amount of survivor's guilt, right? There can be a way yeah. in which you're constantly pulling yourself back down. Yeah because you don't like to alienate people that were important to you in your life. Right. Hmm. So there's, there's something, and that's, that's been a big task for me. I I had sort of the opposite challenge in that I I did succeed far beyond where I came from my siblings and parents and, uh, and all kind of stayed where they were. Uh, but until the recent passing of my mother, uh, you know, I have two older brothers, one brother's passed, the other one I don't really have a relationship with. So my mother was my father, I said, died when I was young. But in one shape, form, or another, as for as long as my mother was alive, and I loved her dearly, but I was going to, for some one reason or another, always get pulled back. <laughs> You're never completely free from where you came from until everybody's gone, right? So, and it's a lot to deal with, and it be, can become a limited mindset, which is holding you back from your ultimate success. Hmm.
0: And and I think that that mindset is so important. Um, you know, it, it's really about. Uh, Like you say, understanding yourself, but understanding where you want to go. And there was one uh, section that stood out to me that seemed a little counterintuitive. And and you do a good job of explaining it, but I want to walk through it uh, with you here. Typically in business and obviously in in the self-employed life, same thing applies. You need a vision, a vision for where you're going. And, and in the corporate life, the idea is to bring everyone along. So you make a, a clear and concise vision. But in the self-employed life, you talk about the danger of having too clear a vision for mm-hmm. where you need to head. What's that about? <laughs> yeah,
1: and I will often refer to this also as the goal paradox, right? Because we need goals, right? We're not, we don't wanna be directionalists. The problem is that goal setting, too, too tight of a vision, can actually be a setup for disappointment. Because often when you're self-employed, you've got big vision, you've got big goals. You can set marks that are so high that we don't... I mean, think about how many people year after year, particularly when you're self-employed. I think it's the experience of most self-employed people. Rarely do I hear from people, it's like, man, I blew away my projections. Usually it's like I set projections and I didn't meet them and now I'm I'm ashamed of myself. I'm embarrassed. I Criticizing myself and there's there's just no value in the criticism So that's the goal paradox even the vision paradox like yes We need the vision but at the same time it shouldn't be a setup for disappointment because you didn't meet your expectations With a vision in particular. I, I think this is really important in today's world of constant change and not just change, yeah, yes, the pandemic created big changes, economies cha- create changes, but what I think is even more important, and I, and I have to say, if I were to ever define a bit of a superpower, this is something that has really worked well for me in my life, is being highly attuned to how the, peop- the lives of the people I serve is, are changing. And, and as a photographer and as a coach, even, you know, during the pandemic, what I really what I really focus on and I've been around long enough to have gone through you know, pretty catastrophic events such as 9-11 and I lived in New York City at the time. So 9-11, the Great Recession, now the, the pandemic and always my 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 whole being is highly attuned to how are the lives of the people I serve changing? And usually what's changing for them is their values. What they valued before that catastrophic event is very different than what they value afterwards. So there's a really good chance your business needs to adapt to their new values. And it might actually put you on the winning side or it may put you on the side of having to figure out how to adapt your business. This is what I mean by, because you could have had a very clear vision. I mean, I, I find it hysterical now how many events were titled in 2020, how many events were titled something about clear vision. (laughs) And we all see how well that went, right? (laughs) That's the problem of having too tight of a vision. It's like, we all thought it was going to look a certain way. 2020 was the year of clear vision until it wasn't. So what I like to stress instead of, you know, have a loose vision, have a direction, know where you're going. But the phrase I use all the time is to follow what's unfolding. Mm -hmm. Have a vision. But follow what's unfolding. Look at how the values of people that you serve are changing and shifting. And what do you need to do to meet them? And maybe even, as I said, probably even improve how you can offer, what you can offer to them. But that to me is, you know, yes, have a vision, have a direction, but be very highly tuned to follow what's unfolding. And you'll, you'll be much more relevant in the moment.
0: And you'll serve better, I believe. Yeah, and I, I think that is so wise. And and when we understand fundamentally what our values are, typically our values do not change. You know, they, they are grounded mm-hmm. within who we are. They're, they're character traits. They are um, almost innate. And you know I love on your website that you've actually taken the time to share with your audience what your values are. You say, I believe the best way to get to know someone is to know what they value what they support and what they prioritize. And mm-hmm. and what are some of those values that you sure. that, that mean I, something to you? Yeah.
1: And I also want to stress I, I love that you just said, like it, you know, and this and the work I did was working with I perhaps our friend in common Brant Menswar, who wrote a book called Black Sheep. So he what he's taught what we're talking about here is your black sheep values, the values that differ change. And when I, when I said a moment ago how people's values change after a catastrophic event, I think more often than not, they're returning to their black sheep values, yeah. right? They've been living their lives in a way misaligned. And I, again, you know, as a photographer, there, I had an experience most people don't understand. And as a, as a speaker, I speak in the luxury market. And the reason I speak in the luxury market, as I always say, I don't just know this market. I was in their closets, right? <laughs> so as their family photographer, like, I saw the most intimate part of the affluent lifestyle, which is who I served. So, you know, I saw the, the you know, how they lived. And I, after an event like nine 11 and the recession, I saw their values shift, which was going to impact consumer patterns, but it was often shifting back to their core values. So right. I've done the work. Uh, and again, I feel the same way. Like when I really got clear of my core values, doing this work with Brant Menswar that in fact, th- th- those values had always been there. I just hadn't really been living them and my core value, I'll just list the six, and then we can talk about them a bit. But my core values are acceptance, gratitude, relationships, integrity, trust, and support. But honestly, each of those words is a cue word for something else. So acceptance, for example, like that's, and that's my top level. That's my most important number one core value is acceptance. But what what acceptance really is to me, and acceptance kind of just becomes the cue word. What it really means to me is that no one should be over Overlooked. And that's so core to me, like the yeah. the, the passion I feel, and how and that's why I that's why I do the work for self-employed business owners. I will be damned if I'm going to let hardworking self-employed business owners get overlooked, mm. overlooked by society, overlooked by government. When there's financial need, I won't have it. I won't have you know people of of marginalized groups being overlooked. I won't have it. <laughs> and as a gay man, I'm in of one of those groups. So yeah. acceptance to me isn't just this, this fluffy accept everybody. It gets to the core of my gut of what makes me angry is when I see people get overlooked and I won't have it. Mm. Gratitude for me is, is actually, you know gratitude is a buzzword, it's tossed around, but to me what it means is, is beauty. I'm a photographer and when I go, I don't ever want to live a day when I go for a walk and I go for a three mile walk every afternoon I don't ever want to live a day that I don't see beauty when I walk. That's gratitude to me. I look, I, I call the moments of awe. I walk by, I see an incredible flower, I live on the water. Like, whatever I see, it's like I don't want to live a day that I don't take a walk and am overwhelmed with gratitude about something that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. So each of these values, I don't know how many of you want to go into, yeah, you know. I,
0: yeah, um, I think that, that's, that's yeah. good. But I mean, they, they clearly have uh, a deep meaning to you, right? Correct. And I think we all have, and we all prioritize different things. But as you say, we all have core values that sometimes we lose sight of, sometimes we come back to, but they can drive where we are going. And I think that's such an important part of the personal development journey. Yeah. And I'll just add trust. You know, I
1: had one more comment because it's easy to assume trust means trust in others. And it doesn't for me. Trust for me. And I actually have what I call a trust mantra that I recite to me when I myself when I need it. And my trust mantra is to trust that when it looks like everything's falling apart, to trust that it's falling together for something bigger than I could imagine. So to me, isn't trust isn't about trusting other people. It is trusting in the which I think is so essential to being self-employed because this is a crazy ride. <laughs> And you need to trust that there's something bigger than you, all your power, all your effort. You can call it whatever you want, but I don't know how we can be bigger than our current state without trusting that there's something bigger than us supporting us.
0: So that's what I mean about trust. That's a really important distinction there, Jeffrey. I'm glad you said that. Um, Well, before we leave the personal development section here, there was one thing I I wanted to ask about. and and you know you talk about making last making lasting change and having that clarity around the big questions but this one really kind of stuck with me making intentions stick i think we all we all have great intentions but it's really hard sometimes to ensure that those intentions are followed through on and what what kind of advice do you have on seeing through uh that vision through those intentions yeah
1: well you know scott i i've i've spent a lot of time with a lot of really woo-woo people and i I will admit to that (laughs) you know i've studied buddhism for i don't even know 10 15 years i studied yoga uh very significantly with a teacher for 13 years so i've spent a lot of my life in in a very you know woo-woo space and i've heard all these great strategies about intentions and such and you know, now I'm in the world of wanting to support self-employed business owners and I I want them to get into action and I want them to get results. So I have spent a lot of time taking the the woo-woo, the ethereal, and trying to bring it down to earth and just make it concise and then looking at the science of it because I love and I'll, you know, I'll say if anybody's ever met Dalai Lama, Dalai Lama is this religious figure, but the man loves science. And if you don't know about that, about him, like Look into him more. Like that man loves science. It's really interesting, and I do as well. It's like I, I love concepts and I like ethereal thoughts, but I also really love science to back up this stuff. Yeah. And intention is one of them. You know, it's like you can have the most glorious, verbose, dreamy intentions in the world, and you know what? They're not going to work. It's not. Gonna, it's just. It's just a beautiful thought running through your head. Uh, the way I teach intentions is what I call a from to format. It's short, concise, and get to the point. I want to go from this to this that's the intention All right so hmm. there was a point in my career a few years back where i was incredibly frustrated that i wasn't getting the speaking gigs that i wanted i saw many of our speaker friends flying right by me getting gigs that i probably was more qualified for frustrating as heck and i had you know chat with myself and realized you know what you need to stop whining about it because you've spent most of your life putting yourself in the back of the line. You've spent most of your life playing, playing it small, being shy, and you know, talking to myself, saying, hey, I know you see in yourself, Jeffrey Shaw, a different person, but the world doesn't see it. So my intention for at least a year was to go from back of the line to the front of the line. And there were words that only needed to make something to, sense to me, but I could recite that intention to my brain all day long, and it was a practice for me as I watched, walked my dogs in the morning, I would just keep holding this intention to go from the back of the line to the front of the line to make sure that, and my whole behavior changed and the behavior changed my results because my behavior changed that when I saw a speaking opportunity, I didn't just sheepishly sit in the background anymore. Now I raised my hand and saying, Hey, I'm good for this. This is an event I could speak at. I, because I held the intention and my brain could handle such a short and concise message go from the back of the line to the front of the line. It only needed to make sense to me. It made sense to me, and I found my entire behavior changed. I became much more forward. I found myself stepping up, being braver, and inevitably, you're going to start getting more opportunities because you're making sure the world is seeing you.
0: Hmm. I like that. And it, the, the, again, the simplicity of it makes it really easy to practice
1: right and i'm constantly you know with my clients and students i'm always you know i'm always concise like getting a bit shortened down like and it only has to make sense to you it could be a metaphor it could be literal uh people often are trying to manage money differently and I it's like well i want to go from not having enough money to pay my bills to having more than enough money to pay my bills not even just enough to pay your bills why not aim for more than enough? So I want to go from not having enough money to pay my bills to having more than enough pay my bills. That's an intention. Clear, concise, and your brain can hold it.
0: I like that. Well, we can all get behind that, no doubt. So let's go from personal development to business strategies. You're a master at
1: segues, can I tell you. I haven't, <laughs> you've, done this, you've done this several times in our conversation, and I'm just grinning from ear to ear. I'm like, man, he's a master at segues. So- Oh, thank you for that, by the way. <laughs> Put that um, on your resume. The, the, yeah, yeah, master the
0: segue. Um, when when you talk about, you you, you, you set up the, the business strategy thing where you necessarily tackle what we have come to know as the marketing funnel. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's very, uh, it's just a very antiseptic kind of way of thinking about things, particularly when you're in your business, when you're in business for yourself, uh, you know, this is a very human kind of endeavor. It's, you're building relationships, and right away you started off, uh, you really grabbed the attention with hug marketing. Mm-hmm. What's that all about? Say, there, there's my woo woo side. I told you, Buddhism, <laughs> yoga, you know. Now we're talking about hug marketing.
1: Um, but it's very intentional because most marketing words have a horrible energy. Now, mind you, I'm a guy who wrote my my first book, it's called Lingo, and Lingo, I, I, I realize now, I wrote it and well, it came out in 2018, so five years later, man, I could go so much deeper with that book, and someday I may come up with a revised version of it for that reason, because I wrote a book teaching people how to use words better to market themselves better and, and attract their ideal clients. That was the goal. Um, what I didn't dive into quite enough which is what I stress all the time now, is the energy behind the words, right? It's one thing to to speak the lingo of your ideal clients and know their cue words. But we also have to be, I think today more than ever, we'd be highly conscious of the energy behind the words. I live in the South and I joke all the time about, you can say to somebody, bless your heart in many different ways, <laughs> <laughs> right? You can, the inflection and energy behind those words can make a very big difference to how it comes across because the energy behind the words. So to me, marketing is just full of horrible energy words, right? We're targeting people, we're shoving them in marketing funnels, we're tripping, we're setting them over trip wires. Like there's no good, and here's the downside of it, multiple downsides. One is, and this is the, Scott, I will tell you, in, in 40 years in business, is the biggest difference I've seen in the world of, of marketing and doing business is, people today make a decision whether to do business with you based on how they feel about you more than any other time I've ever seen yeah in the 80s and 90s if you were really really good at what you did you could be an absolute jerk and people would still hire you today you can be the best at what you do but if people don't like you or if you're a brand that has a, a you know I, I have a whole list of long a long list of brands that I won't support because of where their money goes yeah right so but people hire you because of how they feel about you much more than whether you're the best at what you do than ever before. So if you think about, if even in the behind the scenes, and we're not, you can't, you have to, you're not kidding anybody, but if behind the scenes, you and your team are talking about your target market, your marketing funnel, I don't care what how you think you're coming across. If you're thinking about your audience as a target, they're feeling targeted. And if they, because your strategies are going to be target mindset based. And if people feel targeted, they back up. So you're working against yourself. This is why I came up with the whole idea of hug marketing. It's like, what if the goal was to build relationships so significant with those that we serve that even if you're a completely... Virtual business if you were to meet your your customers in person with their permission You would likely give them a hug And Mm -hmm. I don't know if you experience this as a podcast host But I experience it all the time when I post on social media that i'm going to be visiting someplace for a speaking gig or what have you I have podcast listeners that reach out to me and say hey, you're going to be in my town. I'd love to meet you Guarantee you just by the pure nature that this person has been listening to my podcast Maybe while they're showering (laughs) <laughs> but there's a, there's enough of a depth of a relationship there that when I meet that person, I'm going to hug them. So really our goal in marketing should be a hug. So what I teach in hug marketing is I've completely changed the shape, right? I don't want to look at it as a funnel. I don't want to look at it as I'm, I'm wide open at the top, but I'm going to squeeze you through a small t- hole at the bottom. I don't want to look at it that way. I look at it as a series of concentric circles. Uh, sort of like nesting eggs, you know, a series of concentric circles, and it is now my job as the business owner, aka marketer, to bring people to, towards the center one step at a time. Right? So they start out as lurkers. There are, and, and this is this to me is the the number one gap in a lot of businesses. I tell people all the time. Often, one of the biggest problems I see in businesses, particularly small businesses, is they're trying to convert customers from too small of a number. The way to solve that is start bigger, right? You need to work on social media. You need to be putting out content. You need to build, you need to be a guest on podcasts so that you have an expansive array of, of lurkers, people that are listening and watching and reading what you're doing, but you don't know them by name. You don't know that they're there, right? But they're lurking. And then it's your goal to to put out content that's so compelling they become curious. And then from curious, they become engaged. And once they start engaging with you back and forth, maybe on social media, then they're going to opt into your lead magnet and become connected. Once they become connected, you now are going to likely have a relationship via email. And once you have a relationship via email, you've increased your likelihood of converting them to clients. And once they become clients, you wanna build relationships that are so deep that if you were to meet in person, you'd give each other a hug. That's hug marketing. And it's, it's strategic, but again, just like personal development comes before business strategy, the energy of how you market yourself has to come first because the energy by which you're marketing Will then can be conveyed energetically to the people that you're serving. They feel it. They're much more likely to buy into your message or your product or whatever it is that you're offering.
0: I think that's fantastic. And you know, it, it's interesting because in the oh, I don't know, decade and a half, almost two decades now, that we've had social media, where we've gotten the opportunity to get to know each other. Uh, through various platforms and in various formats. And I know podcasting is a little one-sided because the the listener I think feels a level of intimacy with you that you don't necessarily feel with the listener, it's simply mm-hmm. the nature of the the medium. But in most social media, you know, you're you're seeing people's lives play out. They're the stuff that they want to share with the world is out there and vice versa. And I was talking with, uh, I think, a mutual friend of ours, Ann Handley, at one point, uh, about this notion of meeting for the first time in the flesh someone that you've known only online for so long. And I call that a pre-union, that, you know, it's it's that... you've you've already known each other and there's kind of a re-greeting of of yourselves, but this is the first time you're actually meeting. And to your point, I think that's where a hug would most certainly feel very much in line. Well, um, so, you know, taking this kind of more... (laughs) <laughs> woo-woo, touchy-feely approach to your marketing. <laughs> you they, they struggle to get the words woo-woo out, see? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not part of the usual vocabulary around here, but yeah, uh, I, I completely understand it. And, um, you know, it, everything is based on emotion. I mean, we see mm-hmm. people making so many decisions these days purely based on emotion. Even when you put facts in front of them that negate the decision that they should be making, they still feel a certain way. So I think it's really important. Um, so uh, talk, talk a little bit more about, you know, inspiring this level of commitment of loyalty of, uh, I think you talk about advocates and, and referrals and how these all work together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, said it's, it's, it's so often
1: in business, the, the goal is client acquisition. And yeah. so what we're talking about is going beyond that. And, uh, I, you know, again, my work is focused on self-employed business owners, and uh, I believe in a business of a high profit margin. You know, I mean, to me, we work really hard. At least fifty percent of what's coming into that business should be going into your own pocket. Um, so I've always run my businesses on a fifty to sixty percent profit margin because I work really hard, and I try to keep overhead down. And it's just kind of, you know, it's how I'm able to run my business. I, I. I, I I don't think I could, if I had, you know, I don't know, if I had a $20 million business and I was bringing home $2 million, I, I actually think I'd be dissatisfied. Two $2 million would be great as a salary. But man, that would bother me that I was only getting 10% of what was coming into the business. Yeah. I, so it's just my own mindset because I've always run, you know, very small, successful businesses. Um, so client acquisition has never been the goal for me. My focus has always been on on, on loyalty, repeat business, and it was always the first metric, and still is, always the first metric that I that I look at at the end of a year is what percentage of my business came from previous clients. Not only do I want that number to be 60, 70% uh, for a number of reasons. One, as we all know, it's a lot cheaper to keep customers you already have, but it also just makes life easier. When I look at it, I, I look at it and say, if 70% of my business is coming from repeat clients that means i only have to market to get 30 percent. or as i used to say as a photographer i had a very i had a, a tight control of my volume uh, i would do 150 sessions a year as a photographer and that was the maximum um that i could that i could handle i would do 150 sessions years i had i had an eight-week waiting list for 15 years because wow. I, I held to a maximum so when you have a maximum, people want to get in there more, right? right. So uh, I maintained a, an eight-week waiting list for 15 years uh, in order to hit the 150 ceiling. But about 75, at least, 75 to 80, uh, actually probably more than that because if I look at 60%, right? So like 80, 80 of those 150 clients, 80 to 85 of those clients were repeat clients. Some of them, and I knew, like I, about a two dozen of them were people I photographed every year, the other group uh, we knew would rarely go beyond three years without photographing, and we had systems in place that if somebody didn't schedule a session with us within three years, we reached out to them and say, "Hey, you know, it's been three years since so you did a portrait session." Now, granted, they could have moved on and used another photographer, but we always assumed we were so great that they wouldn't. Like, why would they want to if we didn't give them a reason to? And nine point nine percent of the time, you know, ninety nine percent of the time, ninety nine point nine percent of the time is what I'm trying to say they would respond saying oh my gosh time's gone by so quickly we didn't even Mm. notice yeah right so then i just got more business so we worked really hard to retain to keep a high loyalty rate and i think this is important for every business not only does it make it easier for the i used to joke as a photographer that if if 80 people 80 out of 150 were repeat clients then with great satisfaction i would say thank god i only need 70 people to like me in the world Like, I would go into the next year thinking, I only have to get (laughs) 70 people to like me. I can do that. (laughs) Right? So, but the other thing it would tell me is if that number slipped, if it ever dropped, and there were years that it did, particularly in growth years, and this is an important lesson for a lot of businesses, if that number ever dropped at all, I would skull through, I would go through the entire business to figure out what's going wrong. Because if the people that loved me don't love me as much, something's wrong. So that's why it's always the first metric I check. And and, and I said earlier that it's often because of growth years. What happens, particularly businesses that, as I did, that hit a huge surge of growth, again, going back to my photography business, the very same people who built my business, who were my initial clients, were suddenly calling to book sessions and being told that it would take eight weeks. They were used to getting me practically on demand. Uh. Right? So... When I saw that loyalty number drop, I was like, oh, we have a problem here. And I realized the problem is, is that I had grown so much that my earliest supporters were no longer as, as easily able to get portrait sessions, right? So I, I instituted a whole loyalty program where We let our clients know in February, mind you, my clients were almost entirely Wall Street folks. So they're getting their bonuses in February Uh when they had, that's when they had all the money. So what we did is we reached out to them in February and say, if you intend to photograph any time in the next year, let me know now, pay a hefty deposit. I'll throw a little bit of a, you know, savings your way for planning ahead. But what I will do is I will guarantee you that we'll be in touch 10 weeks before you want your portrait session to keep you ahead of our waiting list. Nice. Right. So I was constantly bringing into programs that, which is complete opposite of the way, the way much of the business world operates. I wasn't giving deals to new customers only. I always made sure my existing company cu- customers had privileges that new customers didn't. And the cool thing is, Scott, they weren't marketed privileges. They weren't privileges I was using to market, to get the business. Once they became a client, I let them in on the secret. Yeah. which is what kept them. And so
0: and I, I, would I imagine that made them yep. just feel, <laughs> to for lack of a better term, feel all warm and fuzzy about yeah. doing business with you. That, right. They're now part of a club.
1: Right. They were a part of a club. I and mean, we literally called it the prior, priority client prepay. Right. Nice. So they were referred to as priority clients. They were given priority. They were made to feel special. Uh, I just have, have always operated my businesses that we shouldn't lose customers. And you and I, I think I have Joey Coleman in common as a good friend who wrote yeah. the amazing book, Never Lose a Customer Again. Uh, I always looked at it as no one, I should never give a reason for somebody to not do business with me.
0: I love that. I love it. So um, valuable lessons there for the business. I think we've got the personal side down. Now let's get to part three, where you talk about daily habits. I'm not, you know, not looking to give the whole secret away here. Obviously, we want people to go buy the book, but what are, what are a few suggestions you have when it comes to practicing daily habits and and doing them in a different way, doing them in a better way to really make this kind of thing yeah. uh, stick?
1: And, and it's, so the reason in the subtitle of the book, it talks about sustainable success. This is the sustainable part. Um, and by the way, I have a, uh, I have a an assessment, and we, I can certainly share it with your, your with your folks, um, selfemployedassessment.com. Um, it's actually a custom algorithm I had created uh, by a brilliant man. It's six questions, and it gives you back a report to indicate where of these three areas of the self-employed ecosystem um, that, that needs some work. And daily habits is one of the most common um, because... It's it so many ironies to it. One, we're busy people, so we think we don't have time for this. Or we go through rough times, slow times in our business, rough times in our lives, and we do everything we can to get ourselves out of the funk. We work harder, we meditate, we dive into all these practices of well-being. They work. We start getting busy, and the first thing we th- toss aside are the very same practices that got us backgrounded. <laughs> right. And then we wonder why self-employment is this roller coaster ups and downs. Like you're doing it, literally doing it to yourself. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I stress the importance of daily habits that are obtainable. So I'm talking 15 minutes a day is what I tell people, you know, and I, I'm like, look, I let's, let's carve out 15 minutes of good, consistent daily practices that aren't just nice to haves, but actually scientifically work. So, uh, and it's a pretty simple system if you will. Uh, and again, 15 minutes because I want people to stick with, I don't even very upfront, and I'm saying, look, aim for seven days a week. You will probably fall at about four to five days a week. But in my experience, and I haven't found scientific evidence for this yet, but I've had other people validate uh, a similar experience that four days is about a tipping point. Hmm. You know, if you're if you're not willing to put as much effort as good, solid, consistent daily practices into your life at least four days a week, you're not going to see results. Somewhere around if you if you consistently put effort five to seven days a week into consistent daily habits, what you're really doing is retraining your brain and systematizing your behavior. And I actually, I've I've been really big on this idea of systematized behavior lately, and it may be a future book, because it's one of the things I, I think makes the biggest difference in people's lives. We can have systems, we can have technology, we can be efficient in our businesses, but what most people lack is systematized behavior right? I mean, I, what does systematized behavior do? It creates consistency. Consistency creates results. Systematized behavior also creates, creates space. Like I I eat the exact same thing for breakfast and lunch every day. Why? Because I don't want to think, I don't want to take up the brain cells to think about what I want to eat for breakfast and lunch, (laughs) right? So I have certain systematized behaviors that just make me more efficient so that I can Jam more into my self-employed day than your average person, which puts me ahead of everybody else. That's why I get I get a tremendous amount done in a week. So the idea of fifteen minutes of daily habits is to create a consistent mindset. The consistent mindset is actually what's going to ca- carry you through the ups and downs of being self-employed. So it, it may look like, and you know, and what I'm suggesting for habits is what I, I always tell everybody: have one. Clearing exercise. Meditation is the most obvious clearing exercise. It's a practice of clearing your mind. But for somebody else, it might be woodworking, right? But have some practice where, in doing that activity, your mind draws blank. Follow that up with what I, my most important daily practice that I teach is what I call a what's going right journal. So once you've cleared your mind, then you sit down with a journal for five to seven minutes. And you list what's going right in your life. And you start every sentence with, what's going right is, I got three new clients. What's going right is, I have an opportunity for a great speaking gig. What's going right is, my children are healthy. What's going right is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Here's what's going on, Scott. And I know that you know this. By doing this practice, we, we humans are wired for threats. We're wired for what could harm us. Today, it may not be lions and tigers and bears, but what could harm us is competition, uh, competitive thoughts, feeling like we're not doing as well as our peers on social media. Our brains are wired to see the negativity and the threats. Which is why you can hear ten compliments, one criticism, and you're only going to remember the criticism. We all know that as speakers, we remember we remember the one person who didn't like our talk.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Forget the ninety-nine people that loved it. It's that exactly. one that's going to destroy us, right? So, the "What's
1: Going Right" journal literally starts retraining your brain, so you start seeing more of what's going right. And what we and what we also know, as woo-woo or scientific as you want to look at it, what we what you focus on, you get more of. So if you start focusing more in your life on what's going right, you're gonna start seeing more of what's going right. It will make you happier,
0: it will make you more successful and it will make you feel more grounded. Anyway, I again, the, the simplicity and profundity of your recommendations here, Jeffrey, are uh, amazing. Uh, and, and whether you're talking about the habits or the business strategy or the personal development, it, it's all pointing in the same direction. And I mm-hmm. think that is fantastic. Thank you. Well, if people would like to know more, you can go to jeffreyshaw.com. Of course, the book is the Self-Employed Life. Uh, We'll have a link to that in the show notes, as well as to uh, the Self-Employed Assessment. There, I think that's an essential one that people should connect with. Um, Anything else? Any other bits of wisdom or tales you'd like to share with us before we part ways, Jeffrey?
1: oh gosh you know I, I just keep doing it i, I just our world needs yeah you know, the thing that tipped the scale for me and i'll try to make this really brief but i mean it, the the pandemic and the ppp loans changed mm-hmm. everything for me um and it changed everything for our world because for the the cares act which introduced the ppp loans it's the first time in u.s history the word self-employed were in a mm-hmm. piece of u.s legislation and wow. I have confirmed that first time in history. Why? Because of economic impact. Yeah. The government recognized that if self employed people, businesses of one, can't feed their families and take care of their households, this country is in trouble. So, the first time in US history in 2020, or 2020 the US government recognized the economic impact of self employed business owners. And I, I, I remember turning to, I think it was my son, I, I said to him, They cracked open the door, and I'm never letting that close (laughs) because I feel so strongly that we are economic drivers. We're important. People that are building businesses, if for no reason other than to support their families and put their kids through college, I I think is so phenomenally bold and brave and beautiful, it gives me chills to this day. So that's why I say, do it. If you have a dream to become self-employed, we are running the country. We are running economies.
0: I say, do it. the impact will certainly be felt. Well, Jeffrey, thank you so much for being with us here on Timeless Leadership. Thank you for having me. Wow. There's so much to take in and apply from Jeffrey. And personally, I know I'm going to take another look at how I show up to my own self-employed life. I hope you do too. In the week ahead, I hope you think about what you value and how you approach your own life as you inspire others to learn more, dream more, do more, and become more. Because that's Timeless Leadership. I'm Scott Monty. There's so much to learn.